Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and this is the weekly sermon from Gateway Community Church. We're excited to be able to share inspiring and meaningful messages to help you grow in Christ. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. Now let's dive into God's Word together with this week's message. I invite you to uh, grab your Bible, if you have that, and join me in the book of Exodus chapter 5, the second book in your Bible. Starting all the way at the left, just a couple pages in, you'll find Exodus chapter 5. And while you're looking for that, I want to, uh, just on the front end, remind you of a couple of the core themes that I identified in weeks one and two of this message. Uh, Just a couple of those that are going to be on shining display this morning, and I want you to have them in the forefront of your mind even before we read the text. So here's the first one I want you to be thinking about, the theme of God working behind the scenes for his glory and for your good. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, one of the challenges for us as Christians today is it's hard for us to trust the things that we cannot see. And it's harder still to trust the things that we cannot control. And so one of the questions that we're always rubbing up against when we look at Scripture and we identify the attributes of God is can we put our trust in Him even when we cannot see what He is doing? or even when we disagree with his methods or with his timing. And that's tied to the second theme, which is we're challenged to put our hope and our trust in a trustworthy God. We're challenged to put our hope and our trust in a trustworthy God. We can look at the faithfulness of God in our past to identify how God's going to behave in our present and in our future come what may come what may. Even if the waves and the disappointment of life come to us, we know that God will be faithful. I've shared this image uh, with you before of an Olympic rower. They have their eyes set toward their past, toward the start line, and the finish is toward their backs. And they're looking, for us as Christians, we're looking at the faithfulness of God in our past to know and to be sustained by what God is going to do for our future. And in the same way, that's how we are called to live our lives. And this passage today is going to help us see more clearly what it looks like to do, to do just that. In fact, it's going to give us a negative example of what happens when we don't. When we don't. So in chapters 3 and 4, God says to Moses, I am going to deliver my people From the hand of Pharaoh, I will draw you out to myself, and I will bring you into a good land, a spacious land, flowing with milk and honey. That's Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a a land flowing with milk and with honey. So here's the idea. God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is merciful. God hears the cries of his people and he comes down to us. He stoops down and he meets the cries of our distress and he delivers us. 
That's the promise we find here, and it's the promise that we get to cling to thousands of years later, right here and right now in our own lives. But as you might recall, Moses, he questions God. He questions his own ability to lead. He doubts himself. He doubts God multiple times. He doubts the willingness of Pharaoh to relinquish control over his entire slave labor force. And he doubts the people of Israel's willingness to follow him as a leader. He doubts even in the midst of the promises of God, I will deliver them. I am merciful. I am compassionate. I will take care of them. And he doubts. And, and I think we can resonate with that. I think there, there are times in our own lives in, in which we function and we behave very similar to Moses. And so God gives Moses three signs, right? Pastor Adam identified those briefly last week, these three signs, these acts of God that are not simply for shock and awe. It's not just meant to wow Moses, be like, oh my goodness, you are the creator. I can tell because no one else can pull off that miracle. But one thing that you're going to see moving forward in the book of Exodus is signs and wonders, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. And whenever I grew up reading those terms, I thought they were synonymous, but they're not. A wonder is a miracle of God that is meant for us to see it and to believe in him as the creator of the universe. But a sign is a miracle with a message. A miracle with a message. And each of these three signs function that way where God is seeking to communicate to us one of his fourth dimensional truths so that we can understand more deeply who God is and what he is doing and who we are in relationship to him. And so that's what these signs are able to do. So we're going to pick up here at Exodus chapter 4, verse 29 to 31. So if you have your Bible, look at this with me. Moses is 80 years old. We uh, learned a few weeks ago that Moses was 40 when he killed the Egyptian and he went into captivity. He went into hiding in the wilderness. And when Moses uh, sees the burning bush, he's about 80 years old. And so he has finally, after 40 years, returned back to the people of Israel in Egypt. And it says this in verse 29. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He performed the signs, those three signs we learned about last week before the people. And they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them... And had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So Moses shows up in Egypt. He gathers all the elders and the people of Israel. He tells them everything that God had commanded them. I saw God in the form of a burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the great I am. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He will deliver you. Oh, 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 and there's three signs. I got to show you the three signs that indicate the faithfulness of God and the power of God and the majesty of God. And he lays out the three signs. And so very briefly, I want to walk through these signs so that we have the eyes to see what God is communicating to the people of Israel. Because the book of Exodus is all about pictures. And these pictures help us understand what is happening in the spiritual realm. 
So here's the first one. We have a staff, which becomes a snake, which again. Moses picks it up, it becomes hard, and he holds the staff. And I think whenever we look at that, we go, oh my goodness, that's a cool miracle. Wow, a snake becomes a staff. And we miss the significance of the images. So I want you to see how this is playing out. So I, I brought some pictures of my own. The first picture here is one of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and you can see that he is holding two things in his hands. He's holding a flail and a what? Help me out. A staff? Well, that's interesting. Why is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, holding a staff when, as I shared with you a few weeks ago, the Egyptians considered shepherds to be an abomination? They hated shepherds. They thought they were lowly, even lower than slaves. So why is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, holding a staff? What's, what's the point of that? Well, it is meant to reveal Pharaoh's power, his authority, his provision, and even his divinity as a god over and above his own people, and now over and above the people of Israel. And so holding them in his hands like that, the flail representing agriculture, the staff representing provision and care, all those held together, it means that he holds the power. He has the control. He has the majesty. He has the divinity. Now here's the second picture. Here is an inscription of a snake that you see there in Egyptian mythology. The Egyptians recognized the serpent as a deadly creature, but at exactly the same time as a symbol of protection, a symbol of hope, of fertility, and even of immortality. And so snakes were everywhere. If you uh, read my Lee Pastor update that I gave on Friday, I showed you a picture of a snake on a coffin, on Pharaoh's coffin, pretty much every single one of the coffins built for pharaohs had a snake on it. And this snake was representative of one of their great Egyptian gods, Apep. And the god Apep would deliver them from their earthly life into their immortality. They would gather them to the next place. And so these are the two central images that Moses is drawing to mind as he performs this miraculous sign and this wonder in the sight of all the people of Israel, and they know what it means. Now, here's where I think it gets really cool. Just let me nerd out for a second. I promise there's a point. I'll land the plane in a second. You might recall in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan appears to Adam and Eve in the form of a what? Help me out. A snake or a serpent, that's right. And so that's really interesting. We already have in our Christian history and in Jewish history that a snake represents something very different than the representation that the Egyptians have given it. And he is the one who deceives Adam and Eve, and because of his treachery, it brings about death and darkness, not life, not immortality. And then, moving forward to the time of Jesus, we have the Greeks... And they have a god called Asclepius. And the Asclepius brings to mind two images at exactly the same time, the staff and the snake wrapped around the staff. And this is the god who brings about power and strength and immortality and healing. 
And this image we still use today. If you've ever been to a hospital or if you've ever seen an ambulance truck, you have seen the Asclepius. There it is. And so we still see these images today. So during the time of Jesus, when he's walking on the earth, the Asclepius is everywhere. And so this is a theme that pops up again and again and again. So if you're tracking with this image, Moses is not just picking up a a snake that turns into a staff. The image that is being portrayed is this. All of the power of imperial Egypt is powerless against the God of the universe, the great I am. That's the image. And so you have to think like an Israelite who has been enslaved in Egypt, looking at Pharaoh and the methods and the images that he uses, it's abundantly clear that God holds the power, not Pharaoh. God is sovereign, not Pharaoh. God can deliver them and bring them out into a land of promise, and Pharaoh can't do anything about it. And they worship. The day of deliverance is here. It's all about this hope. The the first covenant promise that we find in Scripture is immediately after Genesis chapter 3, in which the promise is that the woman will give birth to an offspring, and he will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will strike his heel. And that is a depiction of King Jesus when he defeats death. And so all these images are coming to mind in this one little miracle for us. And the people of Israel knew that as well. Here's the second one. Moses' hand becomes leprous, and then it gets healed. Now, one thing we know about Egyptian culture is that they were master builders. It was also the breadbasket of the known world, so they were masters of agriculture, but they were also masters of medicine and healing far beyond their years. People from all over the known world would come to Egypt in order to get healed. But there was one disease in particular they couldn't do anything about, And it was the equivalent of leprosy. It was leprosy or something like leprosy uh, that many people were dying from. And so the miracle here is not just that Moses' hand became leprous, but the sign was when it became unleprous again. It's one thing to be able to open Pandora's box, so to speak. It's another thing altogether to be able to close it. It's one thing to experience heartache and pain and suffering like the people of Israel have experienced over the last 400 years, but it's another thing altogether to be able to redeem all of those things. And so they see that message. Here is a God who can not only deliver them, who can not only wipe away every tear from their eyes, but he can undo the very evil that we've experienced in our own lives. And we believe as Christians, there is a sense in which when we enter into glory, God will work backwards to redeem everything that we've ever experienced. Even, our hard, even in our, our hardships and our pain, our disease, our suffering, the injustices that we've faced, all of it will become undone and will be turned into memorials of God's grace. And then here's the third one. We, oh, one more thing. This reminds me of a, a familiar hymn that we often sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. God can close Pandora's box. 
he can make it better. And then the third image is the sign where Moses miraculously takes the water of the Nile and he turns it into blood. This is not to be confused with the first plague where the entire Nile is turned into blood. This is just an instance in which they take a bucket, they take some water from the Nile, and it turns into blood. And what's the image? I shared with you a few weeks ago that the water of the Nile was life, and life was the water of the Nile to the Egyptians. You take away the water, you take away life. It's no longer the breadbasket of the known world. It is now a barren desert wasteland. That's how important water is. So if God is over and above the water, and the great Egyptian gods, uh, Apep and Osiris and Isis, If he's above all of these Egyptian gods, then he must be the creator of the universe. And so each of these three images are telling us the same thing. I put it this way in your note sheet. Salvation is here, and the forces of evil are powerless to stop it. The forces of Pharaoh are powerless to stop it. The forces of evil in your life right now are powerless to stop it. And the people understood these signs, and what did they do? They fell on their face and worshipped. With tears flowing in their eyes, they worshipped. And we, we can't just gloss over this. It has been 400 years of the people of Israel living in a land not their own, and the closer and closer they get to that season of deliverance, things have been getting progressively worse. Don't miss that. They've been getting progressively worse. And as of late, Israel has been enslaved, mistreated, oppressed, murdered, raped, used, and abused. And they have cried out to God in their distress. And finally, God has heard them. He has heard their cries. He has come down and he has said, I will deliver you. And the forces of evil are powerless to stop it. I think the most vivid image that I can think of that would be similar to something like this would be like um, when the Allied forces showed up at Nazi internment camps and shared with all of the Jews present who were sickly and bony and to the point of death, evil is no longer an option. The forces of evil are no longer in play. Salvation is here, and hot tears would flow from their eyes. And yet, at least in this story, the season of slavery isn't over yet. A promise has been given, but they're not in the promised land yet. In fact, things get worse before they get better. So look with me at Exodus chapter 5. Here's what happens. Immediately after they bowed down and worshipped, here's what happens. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now that's interesting. We haven't heard that yet. We'll get back to that. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. 
Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. See that word sword? Take note of it. It's going to show up again. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you talking to the pe- taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota at all. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. Pharaoh just called God a liar. The fight's on. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appeared to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants, circle, highlight, underline, this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious. If you have the ESV translation, it says, you have made us a stink to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword, there it is, in their hands to kill us. So are you tracking with the story? It starts with slavery and the murder of children and the people of Israel crying out for deliverance. Then it leads to the ally trucks marching in to declare that victory is won. And then it moves to Pharaoh coming down to the people and telling them, get back to work and I'm going to make things worse than before. Things get worse, not better. And let me ask you, have you been there? Have you been in that place? where you've cried out to God and you said, God, I didn't think my life would turn out this way. I didn't think I would experience this. God, I I thought you were for me and not against me. I thought you had my best intentions in mind. I thought you would protect me. I thought you would be my comfort and my guide. I've depended on you and my life has gotten progressively 
worse, not better. Where are you? Where are you, God? See, we all know that disappointment is always rooted in hope, isn't it? You can't be disappointed if you didn't first hope. Let me ask you, sports fans, what's the easier loss? If you finally make the playoffs and you get swept in the first round and you're the eighth seed, they're the first seed, and there's like no hope for you to win, or the hypothetical scenario of you finally making the finals in 2011, making it to game seven, and then falling on your face, for those of you who are Canucks fans. We know that one's harder than the other, right? It's always harder for those of us who have hope in something that it would turn out differently, but then when it falls to the ground, we are disappointed. And that's how it works in our life time and time again. You can't be disappointed if you didn't first hope that something would be different. And I think that's why Moses responds the way that he does. Because as we already saw in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, he begs with God, he pleads with God, send someone else. He doubts his own ability, he doubts God, he doubts the motivation that Pharaoh will allow the labor force to go, and he doubts that the people of Israel will listen to his leadership. Then what happens? He goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I will not let your people go, just like he said. And the people of Israel said, you have made it worse for us, and you have put a sword in their hands. What are you doing? And so just like Moses had thought, things have gotten worse, not better. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's, there's not a single person in this room who's not affected by this when hope falls flat on its face, when our dreams are dashed, when life doesn't turn out the way that we had expected. And we look to God and we say, God, like, what's going on? How could you allow these things to happen in my life? I thought my life would turn out differently. And it crushes our dreams, it erodes our confidence, and it draws out our insecurities. And if we're not careful, it can also have the effect for us to lose faith and trust in a trustworthy God. And so what can we do with this? I want you to have the eyes to see what is happening in Exodus 5 so that we can defend ourselves against these waves that certainly will come in our life. See, when the waves of disappointment come, I want you to be able to surf and not drown. And so that's what I think we can do if we have the eyes to see what God is doing in this. I love the way that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs puts it. He says this, None of the events of Exodus 5 have been accidental. It is in the darkness of night that Israel has its greatest visions. Hope is born at the very edge of the abyss of despair. What an encouraging, discouraging note that is. There is nothing natural about this, nothing inevitable. No logic can give rise to hope. No law of history charts a path from slavery to redemption from exile to return. The entire sequence of events in Exodus 5 has been a prelude to the most single, most formative moment in the history of Israel, the intervention of God. The supremely powerful intervening on behalf of the supremely powerless. So the question I want to lay before you is what do we do 
when hope disappoints? How do we ride the wave of disappointment and not drown? Here's the first thing that I took note of in your note sheet. I think the first thing we have to do is acknowledge our own limitations and God's lack of any of them. We have to acknowledge our own limitations and God's lack of any of them. See, from Exodus chapter 3 through Exodus 6 that we're going to look at next week, we see a series of times in which God communicates to his people, I am God. I am God. I am the Lord. And the theologian A.W. Tozer, he says this, the most important thing in a person's life is what you think about when you say the word God. And so I think we're just going to have to acknowledge that we're not ultimate and God is. We're not sovereign, and God is. We're not omnipotent, ever-present, and God is. We're not omniscient, all-knowing, God is. We're not completely powerful, but God is. And I think the moment we come to realize that, then we can kind of happily relinquish control if we know that God is trustworthy, I think one thing we need to add to our vocabulary is something along the lines of sometimes God and I disagree, but his ideas are better than mine. His plans are better than mine. And so there needs to be an acknowledgement on our part that God is sovereign, he is in control, and we are not. And let me ask you, is it even remotely possible that even in the midst of our waves, even in the midst of our disappointments, that God's plans are better than ours? That he knows something that we don't know? And that he's going to work out all things to bring about his glory and our good, even if he does it in the way or in the timing we might not expect? So right on the heels of that, number two, we need to read the Bible repeatedly and honestly, repeatedly, and honestly. See, I think one of the reasons why we're typically caught off guard about the way things work out in our life is sometimes because we just don't know what the Bible says. You know, especially in the West right now, one thing we see in, a lo- in evangelicalism across the board is kind of just like the pulling out of Scripture passages and putting them on our stuff, our T-shirts, our mugs, right? God has a plan for you to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. But like, who knows the context of that verse? Who cares? Put it on your mug. And so I think what we need to do is recognize that there's a story, a sequence that's happening, and we have to know what the Bible says. And we have to reconcile with Scripture's complete honesty about how life will be. Otherwise, we might lose faith in a faithful God on the basis of something he never said. And so that's why I've been sharing you um, sharing with you for three years, that as a community of faith, if we want to defend ourselves against the schemes of the evil one, then we need to treat the Bible with the utmost seriousness. 
We need to live in the context of community, and we need to be relentlessly missional. We need to embody our doctrine, not just know it. It starts with knowing our Bibles, but from there, it goes toward embodying our doctrine. We need to know the Word of God, we need to breathe the Word of God, and when we're cut, we need to bleed the Word of God. Otherwise, the evil one will have his day with us, and he will twist things in our lives. And I think sometimes we have the idea that when we follow Jesus, it's like listening to a country song backwards. You're going to get your wife back, your dog back, your house back, your money back, your health back. Everything's going to come back to you. But the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, it says the opposite. John 16, a time is coming, and in fact has come, this is Jesus speaking, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will all leave me alone. That's his foretelling of the disciples leaving him. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have, what's the word? Help me out. Trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. This is not a soft sell, is it? This is the plain Jane honesty that Jesus repeatedly communicates to us where he says, you will have hardships, you will have trouble, you will despair, you will encounter death and dying and suffering, you will be disappointed, but take heart. Why? Why? I have overcome the world. I have you in the palm of my hand, and nothing, no, nothing can take you out of it. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor death, nor life, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from my love. I have you. And the only question that remains is, will you put your trust in me when the waves of disappointment come? Or will you be filled with angst? Or will you lean on the other idols in your life in order to sustain your false hopes? What are we going to do? Which of the two will we do? And this is on practically every page of Scripture. So many instances of seeking to survive in the midst of our disappointment and understanding that God is working in the midst of it. Read the book of Job. Read the book of Jeremiah. Read the book of Hosea. It even happens in the book of Exodus. Uh, some of you know that I was in um, Egypt, Jordan, and Israel just a month ago, or a little over a month ago. And at one point in time, we were able to climb up Mount Nebo, and we have a picture of this. While we were climbing, uh, our leader, he called it the death climb, and I soon figured out why, because we climbed for hours and hours and hours, getting to the top of this mountain, and he had an innate ability to completely exhaust us and then to wrench our hearts. And so here we are, we're at Mount Nebo, we are looking out at Israel, modern day and ancient Israel. We're looking at the promised land, and he tells us this is the place where Moses realized that he was not going to go into the land of promise. After 40 years of faithful ministry, he didn't get to go into the promised land. And the message that he shared with all of us is that there will be Jordans in our life too. 
in which we say, God, like I'm, I'm being faithful. Look at me. I'm doing my part. I'm going to church. I'm using my gifts. I'm tithing. I'm serving. So you better serve me. There better be some benefits to this. And yet the heart of a Christian is someone who can honestly say, I'm going to obey you come hell or high water, and I leave the results to you. And not the inverse, which is I will obey and I expect results. Do you see the difference? What we're saying is I will obey and the results are yours. You figure it out. You're sovereign. You're in control. I'm just going to take the posture of when God says jump, I'm going to say how high. And I'll leave the results to you. But that is a very hard thing for us to do. But listen, we should not be surprised, Scripture says, when tragedies come in our life. When death and darkness comes in our life. We should not be surprised by wars or rumors of wars. We should not be surprised by death or by famine or by catastrophes. It does not mean that we become immune to their effects. On the contrary, Scripture tells us this so that we can be prepared, so that we can ride that wave of disappointment, and so that the rest of the watching world can look at us and go, my goodness, how can they have such hope in the midst of disappointment? And is it possible that God could use even those circumstances of our life to draw others to know him as the King of kings and Lord of lords? Is it possible that God could use even our disappointments to bring about his kingdom plan? I think he could. I think it's possible that he could. But we also need to see where disappointment comes from. And so I really quickly want to lay out for you ways that we disappoint ourselves. Three things. Number one is through half-hearted obedience. Through half-hearted obedience. If you have your Bibles, look with me again at verse 1. I find this fascinating. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, but then a little bit extra, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Now, where did that ever show up? I thought the message for Moses and Aaron from God, we've heard it twice now, is let my people go. And then they just like march out of there. Instead, what does he do? He says, hey, um, great Pharaoh, great king, um, could we maybe go out in the wilderness for a couple days, worship God and come right back? I promise, we'll come right back. No more than three days in the wilderness and we'll come right back. Where did that come from? Is it possible? Now, this isn't prescriptive. This is just according to Justin. But is it possible in that moment, what they're saying is, you know what, God, I, I don't think your plan is airtight. Because I doubt that Pharaoh's going to be very receptive of us coming in and saying, hey, you know that entire free slave labor force that you have? Uh, we're out. We're, we're just going to go. I don't think he's going to take to a liking of that. So maybe we could massage out this plan and we can say, hey, Pharaoh, great king, could, could we just go in the wilderness and worship for a couple days and, and come right back, but then not come back? And what does it do? It only makes matters worse. It makes the disappointment worse. And I think there's a common temptation in our own life that, yeah, we trust God, but only so far as we can throw him. We love God, 
we worship God, we serve God, but let's not go overboard, right? Let's not be crazy Christians who are always trying to convert their friends. You know, we're known as like the loony Christians at the side of the street, always talking about our faith, always giving more than we can afford, always just putting our best foot forward, always forgiving others. Like, let's not be crazy. You know, let's hedge our bets a little bit. And here we have Moses and Aaron doing exactly the same thing. And here's the second thing that I think happens. One of the ways that we disappoint ourselves is through fear. Through fear. Exodus 5 is kind of written like a card before a boxing match, right? In the red corner, you have Pharaoh, king of Egypt, supposed divine God over and above the Egyptians and the Israelites. And in the blue corner, you have the creator of the universe, sovereign and power over all. Now, before the, the fight begins, where are you going to put your trust, right? Where are you going to put your gambling money on determining who's going to win this bout? Who are you going to trust? And the interesting thing that we see here is the people of Israel, even after experiencing the three miracles from God, they still feel fear, fear Pharaoh, don't they? They fear him. I see it in two ways. The first way is when they repute, repeatedly say that you are, uh, we are servants of Pharaoh, right? Three different times they call themselves servants of Pharaoh. Oh, great king. Oh, Pharaoh. They're trying to appeal to him. And then the second way that we see this is look at verse 3 and verse 21. Verse 3, Moses declares to Pharaoh that if you do not listen to the mouth of God, then there may come a sword from God and plagues to afflict Egypt. But then by the end, you have Israelites who are coming before Moses and says, you have made us a stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and have put a sword in his hands to kill us. And the question is, where are you putting your hope? Where are you putting your hope? Like, we have the benefit of hindsight. We look at the story and like, my goodness, why would you ever put your trust in Pharaoh? God has already given you signs. Put your trust in him. But the same question can be said of us. Do we always put our trust in God? Even in the midst of the faithfulness of God in our past? Do we trust him with our future? Or are there times in our own life when we have fear and doubt and disappointment and we go our own way? And so I think the same could be said for us. And the third one is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Again, look at verses 22 and 23. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials have put a sword in their hands to kill us. And here's what I find so ironic about this passage right here. When Moses comes before God right after that passage and he says, God, like, what am I going to do? Isn't it true that on three separate occasions, God has already laid out exactly how this was going to play out? He said, it's going to happen like this, Moses. You're going to go before Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. He's going to say, no, I'm going to perform plagues and wonders, and you're going to get out of there. Moses, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go before Pharaoh. 
You're going to say, let my people go. He's not going to listen. He's going to bring about greater hardships. I'm going to bring about plagues, and you're going to get out there. A third time, he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go before Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. He's going to say, no way. I'm not losing my labor force. Get back to work. I'm going to perform plagues. And then you're going to be delivered out of there. Three times he tells them this, and yet... He still looks at God. He says, see, I knew it. I knew this is what was going to happen. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. I didn't want to come. And here I am, and exactly what I had predicted predicted happened. Pharaoh said no. The people of Israel are angry at me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so at the first sign of opposition, Moses, he forgets the burning bush. He forgets the three signs. He forgets the care and the providence of God from his past, and all he can see is the disappointment that is laid out in his future. He forgot. Israel forgot. And and let me tell you, let me just lay this before you. I think we're the same way. I think we're the same way. There are times in our own life in which we can forget. We're no different from them. It doesn't take much for us to forget the billions of ways that God has been faithful to us. So how can we be sustained in the midst of the disappointment of our present and our future? I want to close with this one. We need to continually look at the cross as the objective evidence of God's fulfilled promises. The one thing that we have up on the people of Israel is we know how the deliverance story ends for them. That eventually they come out of their enslavement and they go toward the land of promise. But even more than that, that was just a temporary deliverance, right? Eventually they're going to get kicked out of the promised land again. Even more than that, we see the deliverance through King Jesus who crushed the head of the serpent and the serpent struck his heel and he died on the cross for our sins and he wipes away the sin of our life so that we can have a relationship with God. We know all of that to be true. All of that's part of our past. And the only question that remains for us is will we trust God with our future? Well, here at Gateway, it is our sincere hope that you would be built up in your faith and in your walk before Christ through this message and every day as you study God's Word. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway. Gateway.